What was that? The girl asked the question, startled. She leapt up from where she'd been writing on the living room floor. She liked to write while on the floor, legs tucked underneath of her, curled forward in a ball position. I thought it was strange and oddly adorable. She was my girlfriend. She was a professional writer. Her stock in trade at the time being erotic novels. We lived together for a while, a long time ago. Now she stood there in the middle of the living room with a furrowed brow, looking confused and somewhat shell-shocked. She looked to her left, then right for a source. I knew the source. I saw him. If you could have rewound the film ten seconds before the girl asked, what was that? You would have seen me standing in my recording studio with an electric guitar slung in front of me. It was a small space. You had to duck your head a little when you were in there. And there was just barely enough room for a couple of guitars, a drum machine, and my trusty old workhorse Fostex cassette 4-track machine. That thing had a lot of miles on it. In the eight years since I'd purchased it, I'd recorded more than 800 songs on it. So there I was, just before the girl asked, what was that? Flailing away, recording a part for a song I was working on. It was 1992, so it was probably one of those flannel band sounding things. I was recording with headphones on so as not to disturb the girl. The studio looked out into the living room and had no door, so while I was going weedly weedly wee on my guitar, I was also watching her writing on the living room floor. There was really nothing to prepare me for what happened next. A little man wearing a gray suit walked out of the dark of the kitchen and started toward the girl. He walked very fast, wobbling slightly. The scene was so completely bizarre, I froze. I squeezed my eyes shut to see if I was hallucinating. When I opened them, there he was, still fast walking toward her. He wore a big red bow tie. His head was bald except for a few wisps of brown hair above his ears. His eyes were bugged out and he looked very annoyed. He walked right past the girl and just before he got to our bedroom, he vanished into thin air. I just stood there my thunderous rhythm track still screaming in my headphones. I was completely baffled. I pushed stop on the tape machine. What was that? The girl asked, leaping up. My heart was suddenly full of ice water. What was that? She said again. The room was eerily quiet. You saw him too? I said. Who? She said. I didn't see anybody. I just felt someone walk past me. Hi, you don't know me, but I'm Jim Walker, and this is Record. I guess I should tell you right now that this is a ghost story. I should also tell you that I don't believe in ghosts, or at least I didn't until that moment. I always figured that people who believed in ghosts were completely delusional. Ghosts, UFOs, unicorns, the boogeyman. Give me a fucking break, will you? I'd always been a wash and wear kind of guy. 
a firm believer in what was in front of me and what was supportable by science. That was real. But then this shit had to go and happen. A few months before the little man came into our lives, the girl and I were living with two roommates in another house, a duplex in a nice, friendly neighborhood. At first, this living arrangement was great. Everyone in the house did something artistic, and creative energy was flowing through the place. Writing, short films, music. I was working on my first record by myself after my band Lost Anthony had split up. I had a little studio set up in the bedroom. The idea I had for this record was... After all those years in a loud band, playing with a bunch of dudes, this was just going to be me singing alone, accompanied only by my acoustic guitar. Air beats from the underground Steam comes up without a sound I worked on this record constantly, trying new songs, new arrangements, new vocal things, trying to translate to tape what I was hearing in my head. I just so badly wanted for it to be as good as it could be. I can't remember exactly when it all began to go south there in the house with the roommates, but at some point, the girl and I began to unravel. Our relationship had always been somewhat volatile, but we seemed to like that about it. Then we started to argue a lot, then fight, then scream. It went on for weeks. The fights didn't seem to have a rhyme or reason. Nothing specific would start them, and they weren't about anything. It was just fighting for fighting's sake. It got as ugly as you could possibly imagine. We both said things that could never be taken back. I still shudder thinking of it. The other roommates were concerned, and also very, very uncomfortable, and rightly so. I was concerned and uncomfortable. Turns out, the people upstairs, the other tenants in the duplex, the nice Christian family, they were also concerned and uncomfortable. They were a sweet, church-oriented bunch, and their young twin boys were getting quite the earful of prime, grade-A-choice vulgarities howled at the top of our lungs in the dead of night by the girl and me. Whoopsie. One day, the man upstairs, not God, but the nice man from the duplex, asked if he could speak to me privately. He took me aside and very kindly told me that the arguing and screaming were very upsetting to his family. He said he felt bad for asking, but would it be possible for us to move out? He was so amazingly frank and honest about it that I told him, yes, we'd move. When I told the girl we'd been asked to leave, she got a wild look in her eyes, a blood-spilling look. She started to open her mouth to protest, but I touched her on the arm gently and said, nope, we're going. And for once, there was no argument. A couple of weeks later, the girl found us a new place. It was an old three-story mansion in Altadena that had been converted into six large apartments. Our apartment was the coolest, though. It was the attic. You entered through a door on the first floor. Then a claustrophobic spiral staircase wound up to the third story and into the attic. At the top of the stairs, you entered the apartment through a long kitchen, which the A-frame of the building's roof took up one entire side of. But the best part... 
The main section of the attic was a large common room, all old wood, and that room shot off into four hallway gables, and also four small, oddly shaped rooms. This was the coolest place in the world. recorded. And for a time, we were happy. But then this thing happened with the little bald man. And we were shaken. It freaked the both of us out. Shutting off the lights at night was almost impossible. We'd both stay up till all hours working, staving off sleep until the lights started to show. We became day sleepers. Then, little by little, the fighting began creeping back into our lives. And this time, it was worse than before. Eventually, it became obvious that this wounded relationship wasn't going to get any better. The girl was the one who finally had the guts to end it. On my birthday. It wasn't planned that way. It just happened. She packed her bags and moved away upstate within a couple of days. Then I was alone in the attic, wondering if the little man would come back. The day after the girl vacated the premises was April 29th, 1992. If that date doesn't ring an immediate bell with you, that was the day the LA riots began. In all my emotional hubbub, I hadn't been paying much attention to the news. Turns out they'd announced the verdict as not guilty in the Rodney King trial, and tense waves were starting to ripple throughout the Southland. So about 4.30 that afternoon, old clueless me hopped into the jalopy and headed to the post office. I was driving along there on Morango Avenue, when all of a sudden there was a BAM sound as my windshield was pelted with a couple of big rocks. What the fuck? I screamed, slamming on the brakes. I looked toward the direction of the throw, and two black teenagers turned around and bolted down an alleyway. Great. Fantastic. It wasn't enough that my girlfriend had moved out, and that there was a little Danny DeVito-looking poltergeist running around behind my walls. Oh no. Now I had two large spiderweb divots taken out of my windshield. Well, fuck me running. So I keep on driving down the road there. I'm pissed off, and I can't figure out why these kids would have been hurling rocks at me. My neighborhood was ethnically diverse, but everyone seemed to get along just fine. Not a lot of hate crimes going on that I knew of. So I get to the post office, and I'm grumbling to myself. It's goddamn windshield. God damn it. And I walked up to the first clerk I saw, an elderly black man. I said, hey there, how you doing? All cheerful-like. Remember... At this point, I don't know jack squat about the King verdict. Truth be known, I didn't have a TV that got stations anyway. I didn't subscribe to a newspaper, and I rarely listened to the radio. So I hadn't been following much of anything anyway. When I walked into that post office, I might as well have been Amish. The old guy behind the counter just stood there. Hello? I said. I realized he was listening intently to the radio. The radio voice said something to the effect of, in recapping, all defendants in the Rodney King beating trial have been found not guilty. The old guy turned and looked at me and said very quietly, Those dirty, dirty dogs. Man, the way he said it sent a chill up my spine. It scared the hell out of me. I turned and looked around. I was the only white face in the place. And it's not that I really thought I was suddenly going to get a honky heave-ho out the front door or anything. But I suddenly felt weirdly exposed and guilty for some reason. Uh, I think this can wait, I said, leaving. With the benefit of hindsight, 
I guess I really shouldn't have gone out that night to the palace to see the Chris Whitley concert. I don't know if many people even know who Chris Whitley was. He died many years ago. But he was this amazing guitar player who played what sounded like a swampy, Delta Blues style of slide and picking, but with these wild alternate tunings and bizarre fingerings. He was a handsome bad boy with a gorgeous voice. His music was like Lead Belly meets the Grateful Dead meets the dissonance of Frank Zappa. Psychedelic, countrified blues backed by a dreamy hypnotic band that sounded like everything the rhythm section for U2 wished they could do. The reason I was even at the show to begin with was because I'd recently crossed paths with Chris Whitley, and he didn't even know it. I'll get back to the ghost story, don't worry. A couple of months before the riots in this Whitley show, I'd had a really cool opportunity come my way. To have one of my songs in the Ridley Scott film, Thelma and Louise. I had this song called Sleeping in Your Arms. friend of mine, I'd gotten hooked up with a music publisher lady who really liked my songs, and she was trying to get them placed in films. She played Sleeping in Your Arms for Ridley Scott, and he loved it. He said it was perfect for the love scene in the motel with Gina Davis and Brad Pitt. Sorry, spoiler alert. As far as everyone involved in the film was concerned, the song was in the movie. It was a done deal. Until the publisher lady heard a Chris Whitley song called Kick the Stones. A ghost town a gold mine, a pickaxe in my head, I'm Then she went and played Chris's song for Ridley. Immediately, my song was out and Chris's was in. I was a tad miffed about that, as it really would have been a nice feather in my cap to have a song in a big movie by one of my all-time favorite directors. But easy come, easy go. Actually, his song works much better than mine would have. So it's fine. I'm over it. Almost. So that's how I ended up at Whitley's show that night. Completely out of spite. I wanted to see this SOB was who beat me out for this movie song thing. He hit the stage that night, and damn, he was incredible. Later on in his career, there were stories about his shows being pretty horrible, with Chris wandering around the stage, barely able to stand up, let alone play, totally useless from heroin. But this wasn't one of those nights. This night, he was phenomenal. One of the best shows I've ever seen. When it was over, Chris got on the mic and said, Watch out out there, it's getting pretty dangerous. I thought that was just a general blanket statement about the state of the world. We exited the theater, and just outside the doors got quite a shock. We were face to face out on the street with the LAPD's command presence. About 50 cops in full riot gear regalia standing at Hollywood and Vine. That was really something to see. A cop with a bullhorn began talking to us. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a curfew in order. Go directly home and do not stop. The freeways are closed, so you'll have to utilize side streets. Do not stop. Thank you for your cooperation. I heard someone next to me say there were riots going on in South Central. Los Angeles was burning. Oh, goody.
Back in my apartment, I climbed out of my window and onto the roof. I sat out there with a beer and watched the entire western portion of the sky turn a dull orange. There was a storage facility across the street from my house, and while I was there on the roof, a station wagon pulled up to the place. The driver's hand punched in a key code. The gate opened. While the driver stayed in the car, three guys got out of the wagon and disappeared behind one of the units. A few minutes later, they came running, jumped back in the station wagon, and took off. I didn't think much of it till about 10 minutes later, when the entire storage facility exploded into flames. I found out later, because they were caught, but the guys had burned their own storage space to try and blame it on the rioting and get the insurance. Over the next several days, there was a lot of that going around. An epidemic. It was getting really nasty out there. The week went by in a completely surreal haze. On TV, I watched LA smoke and flame. In my neighborhood, stuff burned. Everything smelled like tires on fire. Ash drifted merrily in the breeze. I just holed up in the attic and worked on music. Given the climate, it wasn't that surprising that the songs I was writing were paranoid, nervous, heartbroken, and riddled with anxiety. And a bunch of them were also about death and ghosts. Party! Is it safe to come out? Are the graves packed tight? You've been feverishly working through the dead of night. Bye bye, baby. of all this madness, I was in the kitchen on the phone when something caught my eye. I looked up. There in the middle of the large common room was a girl. She was wearing a white, old-time, ankle-length dress with ruffles and bows. She was dancing, doing what looked like pirouettes and graceful turns. But it was all in slow motion, and her dress and hair seemed to be being blown by a breeze. I just stood there staring. For some reason, I wasn't really afraid. The only thing I was afraid of was that the image would disappear. I said, I'll call you back, and set the phone down on the counter. I took a step forward. The girl kept dancing. I couldn't see her face. I took another step forward, and that's when I saw a woman standing beside the dancing girl. This woman appeared to be in her 60s, very matronly, with a bulldog face and hair up in a bun. She was watching the girl dance with a kind of disapproving look on her face. I took one more step forward, and the scene vanished before my eyes. This whole thing lasted a good 25 seconds. A few days later, I was pulling my truck out of the back driveway that the tenant shared. It was broad daylight. I was pulling down the narrow drive out to the street when a man appeared in front of me. He just walked out of the wall and stood in the driveway five feet in front of my truck. He was wearing a 40s-style suit and hat. His skin was green, and his clothes were green. He put his hand up like he wanted me to stop, then vanished. A couple of days after that, I was standing in the kitchen when a pair of hands appeared on the banister near me. 
The hands were sliding up the banister from the dark staircase below. Long, white, elegant hands that were detached from a body. They slowly gripped the railing and pulled themselves along. I watched them for several seconds. Then they disappeared. When I think of all this stuff now, my blood runs cold. But at the time, maybe it was just where my head was at and where my emotions were. It just didn't seem all that weird. During this time, my cat Floyd, who'd always been completely happy to be in the house and never leave, suddenly couldn't stand being inside. He'd stay out for days at a time, come in, quickly eat some food, and whine to get out again. I saw less and less of him. With all the bizarre things that were happening, there then came another problem. This one was a little bit more grounded in the real world, though. I needed to find a new roommate. I couldn't afford the place all by myself. But you can imagine how many people are just itching to live in a haunted house. Finally, I asked my friend Eric to move in with me. I told him what was going on with the visitations, and he said he'd move in, but if any of that stuff happened while he was there, he would absolutely freak out and have to leave. And it was as though, as soon as Eric put that thought out into the ether, letting the spirits know that it wasn't going to swing for him if they were there, they left. As suddenly as all the weirdness started, it just stopped. And several days later, Floyd came back and was once again happy to be in the house and just stay put. It was very weird this time period. It was like for a time, I was tuned into a radio station that only I could get. And then I lost the signal. Actually, there was one strange thing that happened after Eric moved in. We were standing in the kitchen talking one day, and Eric happened to notice that on one wall of the kitchen, to the right of the counter, there was a large square piece of thin sheet metal screwed to the wall. It was about the size of a small door. I always just assumed it was the front of an electrical sub-panel and never thought twice about it. But after he noticed it, we got curious about it. So I got a Phillips head and loosened the screws. I pulled the metal sheet off. There was a large hole into darkness. Eric and I looked at each other. We got a flashlight. The hole was just barely big enough for us to climb through. When we were both on the other side, we found that there was enough room to stand up. We pointed the flashlight into the dark. We were standing in a hallway. The walls around us had been sheetrocked, but they hadn't been finished or painted. We began to walk down the hallway. It went on for about 15 feet, then angled right. We continued walking. The hall went on for about six more feet, then stopped. The only thing at the end of the hall was an old-style child's classroom chair, wooden seat, metal back. On the floor next to the chair was a stuffed animal. We were in a hidden room behind the walls of an old attic. Creepy doesn't begin to describe it. I held the flashlight under my chin and went, Ooh. Eric said, No, do not do that. I saw his point. And we made a quick beeline back through the hallway and then through the hole out into the kitchen. We put the sheet metal back and sealed the hole up. We both looked at the metal sheet now back in place. I think we both shuddered at exactly the same time. The house never felt quite the same after that, even though I lived there for another year and a half and never had another incident. Uh, wait. There was one more thing. It was when I was moving out and we had our final inspection. But I'll get to that in a bit.
I've heard that pretty much every working stiff is about one paycheck away from being completely broke. And in 1993, I learned it firsthand. My friend Rick had gotten me hooked up with a music house in Burbank that created a lot of music for high-end commercials. He recommended me to them as a singer. It was about six months later when they unexpectedly called me out of the blue, asking if I could sing like Mike Patton from Faith No More. Yes, I said, lying through my teeth. Always say yes. So I went and sang the spot. And though I sounded nothing at all like Mike Patton, they liked what I did and started hiring me regularly. It was great money, and I was usually in and out of these sessions within a half an hour. For a while, I was their go-to beer guy voice for national TV and radio spots. Then one day, I got called to sing a jingle for a new product called Crystal Clear Pepsi. I drove over to the studio, I was put in the booth, and I sang whatever words they plopped in front of me. When I came out of the booth, the producer on the session pulled me aside and said, Man, do you even know how much money you're going to make off this spot? I shook my head. They're going to be playing this spot day and night for months promoting this stuff, and you get paid every time it plays. It's Pepsi, man. You're going to make a friggin' fortune. Hmm. Well... Since I'd never made a friggin' fortune before, I was pretty excited about the prospect. And since I now had this fortune coming my way, I have to admit, I slacked off a bit and didn't chase work with my usual exuberance. Can you smell where this is going? About a month after recording the Crystal Clear Pepsi jingle, my fortune had yet to arrive in my mailbox. But it was no big deal. Some of these big ad agencies took up to two months to pay. The bigger they were, the longer they took to cough. I guess that's how you stay rich. But after three months, with no money whatsoever coming through the door, my wallet was flattening out, and I began to sense something about my fortune might be amiss. I called the producer from the Jingle House and asked him if he knew anything about my fortune. He said, wow, Jim, you should have gotten paid by now. I'll look into it for you. About an hour later, I got a call. Hi, Jim. Can we put you on speakerphone? Uh-oh. Yeah, sure. A small group of Jingle House people on the speaker told me that there'd been a mistake. It turned out that the spot we'd recorded was just one of several that had been recorded by different ad music houses all over the country. What I'd done was only a demo. The producer guy who told me about my fortune apparently didn't know that. He thought we were doing a final version. Just a little miscommunication. The version of the spot that actually aired was sung by another singer in New York. The Jingle people apologized, saying that they were very sorry about the mix-up. I said it was no problem, and hung up. No problem? What? Christ, it was a huge, huge problem. I was fucking broke. But it was nobody's fault but mine for being an idiot and not following up on things. That was a hard lesson learned about being proactive. So, there I was, a chump, totally drained of dollars. I was also totally drained of any interest in my dubious music career. It all just seemed fairly pointless. I was tired of bands... Tired of people in bands, tired of bars, booking agents, auditions, rehearsals, all of it. But mostly, I was tired of life in Los Angeles. There's a great song by Graham Parker that goes, I live near Hollywood, out in the canyon. It's a good life if you're winning. It's a killer if you're not. During this financial rough patch, I felt like I was suddenly living out that song. Those lines went through my head day and night. Eventually, I came to the realization that I needed to say goodbye to Hollywood. I was over it and ready for something else. Somewhere else. Chemical Romance 
Kim and I started dating in the fall of 1992. At that point, she had a great job, working as an assistant to a big-time movie producer. But right about the time as the crystal-clear Pepsi debacle, Kim got laid off from her movie job and was at a crossroads herself. Suddenly, neither one of us had anything at all going on, or any hope of anything good ever happening for the rest of our lives. There was no future. Nothing. So, road trip. So there we were, two free spirits, just a-wandering around. We got in the car and, like two stinky hippies, started roaming around the West Coast looking for a city to live in. We went to San Francisco, Bozeman and Butte, Montana, and up to Seattle. Kim had worked in Portland in 1992 on that Madonna movie masterpiece, Body of Evidence, and said it was a really cool town. So we drove into Portland one weekend, and when we got here, we fell in love with it. We rented an apartment on the spot, and then drove the thousand miles back to LA to get our stuff, and announced to our friends and family that we were moving away. We'd never even lived together before, and here we were making this major move together. Definitely the most impetuous thing either one of us had ever done. Our friends said, Portland? Why? What the hell's in Portland? Oh, you guys will be back. LA will still be here waiting for you. A few weeks later, I was back in LA in the attic apartment, packing everything up for the move to Portland. I was leaving the next morning. As I was loading up all of my stuff into boxes, the very last thing on my mind was the paranormal activity I'd experienced more than a year previous. I was more concerned with the fact that I'd agreed to move into a one-bedroom apartment with Kim in an unfamiliar town without either of us having jobs or prospects. The reality had sunk in, and though I was sure it would all work itself out, I was a bit vexed as to how. I was wondering if Kim was feeling the same. In the middle of all this going on in my head, the doorbell rang. I went downstairs, and there was Dave, the owner of the building, a guy I liked very much. Honest, total straight shooter, not afraid to tell you what's on his mind. Hey Walker, I'm here for the final inspection, making sure you didn't tear the place up with your damn rock and roll lifestyle. Ha 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 ha. He went through the house looking around, making sure that everything was okay. Well, everything looks great, Walker. I guess you'll get your deposit back after all. That was good, since my deposit was all the dough I had on earth thanks to the Pepsi shit show. Alright buddy, well you've been a real good tenant, we've appreciated having you here. He turned to leave, then stopped. You know, when you and that girl first moved in, I wasn't sure if you were going to end up staying or not. I asked him why. Well, a lot of people who've lived here say the place is haunted. Really? I said without tipping my hand. What do you mean? And he told me this story. The place had been owned many years back by a woman whose husband had died. After he died, she made ends meet by teaching young girls to dance. I suddenly flashed on the girl I'd seen dancing through the living room. I thought about the matronly woman I'd seen standing behind her, scrutinizing her. Dave went on to say that after the woman had died, the place changed hands several times, but it never seemed to quite work out. The new owners would always sell fairly quickly. So Dave bought the place and converted the rooms into apartments. The first prospective tenant he had after the place was opened was an elderly black lady. She'd seen the yard sign and knocked on the door asking if she could take a look at the apartments. Dave took her up to the second floor where there were two apartments ready to be rented. Dave opened the door to one of the apartments 
and as the woman crossed the threshold, she stepped back. Oh no. Oh no, not this one, she said. Dave said, okay, and took her across the hall to the other apartment. He opened the door. She walked in and looked around. This one will be fine, she said. Out of curiosity, what was wrong with the other one, he asked her. There's someone in there, she said. No, ma'am, it's vacant, he said. There's someone in there, she repeated. A few months went by. All the other apartments had finally been renovated and rented. Once in a while, tenants would call Dave about odd sounds in the house, but when he came to investigate, he never found anything. The tenants began to think the building was haunted. One of the tenants complained about smoke smells coming from the old black woman's place. Dave asked her about it. She said she was burning herbs. Dave asked why. She said, to keep that big woman away, but mostly to keep away that pesky little fellow. Dave had no idea what she was talking about. Several months later, there were more complaints about smoke and racket in other parts of the house. So Dave talked to her again. It's okay, she said. That pesky fella's gone now. She told Dave that she'd conducted a ceremony in the apartment. She'd invited a group of like-minded believers over, and they summoned the spirit of the pesky little fella to her apartment. He was so mad, she said. He appeared to them at the ceremony, and she said they forced him into a bottle, corked it, and then they drove down to the Santa Monica Pier and threw the bottle into the ocean. She told Dave that after they did that, the house was peaceful. Dave thought she was nuts, but figured as long as the smoke and noise was over, he'd just as soon let it go. I was reeling a bit. When did this, uh, when did this seance supposedly happen? Hmm, I guess it was about a month after you and the girl moved in. It was about a month after we moved in that we'd had our experience with the little man. Him walking through the living room toward our bedroom looking manic and upset. Just below our bedroom was the old lady's apartment. Near as I can figure, that was the night they summoned him. So I took a breath and said to Dave, so check this out. I told him my side of the story, my experience with the little man and the others. Then I showed him the secret room behind the kitchen. When I was through, he was thoroughly freaked out. He plied me for all the details I could give him, and after I'd exhausted everything I could think of, he left. A few hours later, maybe 10 p.m., I was still loading stuff into moving boxes. The doorbell rang again. I went downstairs, and it was my neighbor, Armin, who rented the apartment on the first floor. Him and his wife were a very nice young couple who had exchanged passing nods with, but never really spoken much to before. Yes, I said. Dave told me, you've seen the little man. Come in. Armin's wife had repeatedly seen a person out of the corner of her eye a small, bald man wearing a gray suit. He'd disappear if she looked directly at him. After a while, he'd appear to her in dreams, where he'd be inside their piano, pulling the strings and jumping around. She'd ask him to please leave, and he'd just shake his head. Then she stopped seeing him in dreams, or otherwise, about a year and a half ago. This was also consistent with the time around the seance. The whole thing was a freakout. I finished packing up about midnight, but couldn't sleep. At 3 a.m., I dragged all my worldly possessions down to my pickup truck and packed it up and tied it down. There was so much crap. I tried every configuration I could think of, but the one thing that I couldn't manage to fit in the truck was my brand new vacuum cleaner. This really bothered me because I'd just bought it for $120 at Sears. I was really broke and couldn't afford to spend the money on it, but I needed to vacuum the large rug in the attic for the final inspection. 
Now, staring at the loaded-down Beverly Hillbillies pickup, there was no way this vacuum was going anywhere. Then, I remembered that the apartment we were moving to in Portland had hardwood floors, so I wouldn't be using the thing anyway. It was 4.45 in the morning, so I couldn't even knock on anyone's door and give it away. So I left this brand new vacuum sitting at the dumpster and pulled away into a new life. There it sat in the rear view as I pulled away. In the dark, it looked just like a little man. When I think about this story, my one and only ghost story, that vacuum is what keeps popping into my mind. I wonder whatever became of it. Did someone pick it up and use it? Or was it just thrown away and forgotten? I also wonder what happened to the little man. Is he still bobbing around angrily, alone in the dark green water of the Pacific? Or maybe someone found that bottle, picked it up, and uncorked it. 